distraction this morning. And that's okay. But we're grateful that you're here. And so if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 8 in just a few moments. But here's what I want you to know. Every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're educated or whether you're uneducated, every single one of us is living for something. And that something that you are living for shapes your entire life. What you are living for shapes your desires, it shapes your dreams, it shapes your passions, and it shapes your identity. See, here's the reality. Whatever you are living for eventually captures our hearts and ultimately controls our lives. Whatever you are living for captures your heart and controls your life. In other words, what you are living for is Lord of your life. Whatever you are living for is Lord of your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an English pastor in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, said this. He said, the true Lord of your life, the driving narrative, the story you're living out of is anything, get this, anything that holds such a controlling position in your life or mine that it moves and rouses and attracts us so easily that we give our time, our attention, our energy, and our money to it effortlessly. We don't even think about it. Isn't that so true? That whatever you're living for, whatever has captured your heart and controls your attention and controls your life, you give your time, your talent, your money, you give everything to that without even thinking about it. And in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, we're going to hear the story of a man named Stephen. Now Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's the first Christian to die for his faith. And Stephen was a man that had given his attention, his time, his everything to Jesus Christ. Now, I, know about, I don't know about you, but I rarely think about dying for my faith. Anybody think about dying for your faith? We just don't, we don't do that really in America, do we? We don't really have to be concerned about dying for our faith. But here's the reality. There are thousands and thousands of Christians who are martyred worldwide every single year. One out of every 12 Christians worldwide faces severe persecution. But here in America, we don't really have to think about that. We don't even have to concern ourselves with that. So instead of Instead of thinking about that, the, help, uh, that, uh, the fact that we would die for our, our faith, I think we need to pause and ask a different question. Because dying for our faith, really for us, is just theoretical. Like the reality is, none of us are going to be forced to die for our faith. The majority of us won't. And maybe if you go overseas, maybe something like that. But the reality is you just probably won't be asked to die for your faith. So I think we need to ask ourselves a different question. So instead of asking, am I willing to die for Jesus? 
I think a better question for us to ask is, am I willing to live for Jesus? See, Jesus promised us an abundant life. And I know many of us that hear that and we think, oh, yeah, that's going to be eternity. We get to spend eternity with him. And that's going to be the abundant life that Jesus promised. But the reality is he promised that abundant, abundant life here and now. That we don't have to wait for eternity to live an abundant life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Or have it more abundantly, depending on your translation. And so what, what Jesus is showing us and teaching us, like you don't have to wait for eternity. And so when we look at Stephen's life, here's what we do. We get a front row seat to the abundant, full life that God desires for each and every one of us. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Eric, you've lost your mind. Stephen is killed for his faith. How on earth could this man... Stephen, who dies for his faith, who we only know about him from just a few short verses in Scripture, how on earth could this man who dies for his faith be an example of a, of a full and abundant life? Well, the reality is, church, Stephen's life is characterized by fullness. In fact, if when you read Acts 6 and Acts 7, Scripture constantly tells us that Stephen was full, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power. Over and over and over again, the Scripture teaches us, Luke tells us, that Stephen was characterized by fullness. Now when the Bible talks about being full of something, what that means is that you are controlled by that something. And so this is what it is teaching us. It is saying that Stephen was a man that was controlled by the Holy Spirit. A man that was controlled by wisdom. A man that was controlled by faith. A man that was controlled by grace and by power. You see, Stephen had surrendered his life to the only Lord and the only one worth living for and if need be, dying for. That's why we can look at Stephen's life and say, this was a man who lived life to the full. Because Stephen was a man who imitated Jesus. He was a man who lived his life like Jesus. Now, folks, that's the goal for each and every one of us, isn't it? Like the goal of the Christian life is to be more and more like our Savior. In fact, if you want to know what spiritual maturity actually means, it doesn't mean following a list of rules and regulations. It doesn't even mean showing up for church every Sunday. What spiritual maturity means is becoming more and more like Jesus. And Stephen is a man who did that. Stephen is a man who lived his life and became more and more like Jesus. So let's dive into his life and let's see how he lived his life and how he lived like Jesus. And it says in, 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 in uh, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. So take your Bible, your app, your phone, whatever. This is the time. I won't call you out, Jim Cook, for looking on your phone and texting everybody. Just kidding, Jim. I can only do that because nobody online can hear that. Don't forget that I ever said it. Um, and Stephen, full of grace and full of power. Here it is again. He's full of grace and power. 
was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So let's stop right there. What it is showing us right here in the very beginning of first eight is that Stephen is grace-filled. Just like Jesus, Stephen is full of grace. Now, grace in the New Testament means God's unmerited and undeserved riches given to us through Christ. That's what grace means. And so what this is saying is that Stephen has been given God's grace, and as a result of that, God's grace is being poured out through Stephen to everyone around him. Whether it's the Hellenistic widows that Stephen served, or whether it's those that are experiencing the signs and wonders that he performs, every single person around Stephen is experiencing God's grace. And here's the reality, church. God's grace can do the same thing for you and for me. See, oftentimes when we think about God's grace, what do we think about? We think about salvation. We think about the forgiveness of sin. We think about the fact that, that God's grace, through His grace, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. But grace is so much more than that. Grace is so much more than that. Grace doesn't only forgive our sins. It is through God's grace that you and I are transformed. It is through God's grace that you and I are changed. It's not just about God's grace saving us. It's about God's grace transforming us. And so Stephen is a man who is full of God's grace. But not only that, it says that he is full of power. What does that mean? That means that the Holy Spirit has empowered Stephen. That Stephen lives his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's interesting. Here's what we need to grasp. That Stephen is full of power when he's serving tables and when he's performing signs and wonders and when he's preaching powerful sermons, which we'll see in just a minute. See, every aspect of Stephen's life is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, so often we think that, that, that God's power is at work only when we do the miraculous, only when we do big things for God. That's when God's Spirit is, is empowering us. But the reality is, church, God's Spirit is empowering you in everything that you do. And in Stephen's life, he had God's Spirit empowering, empowering him to serve tables. Even mundane tasks like serving tables, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous. And he was empowered by Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to, to preach sermons. So whether he's serving tables or preaching sermons, everything Stephen does is done through Jesus' power, not his own. That's what the full life means, church. When you and I are living our lives through Jesus' power and everything we do, whether it's our job, Monday through Friday, whether it's serving a neighbor, whether it's being kind to a coworker, everything we do, whether it's doing major things for the kingdom, regardless of what we're doing, everything we do should be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus told his church? He said, but you will receive what? Power. What did he say we'll receive? Power. What's that again? Power. Power. There we go. Finally, everybody called on. 
But you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so Stephen was a man whose the Holy Spirit had come upon, and he had received that power to do what? To be Christ's witness. That's what happens, church. When you and I receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we, are, we, we receive that power to be His witness. Because remember, whatever you are controlled by is the very thing that is filling you. If you are filled with jealousy, guess what? You're going to be controlled by jealousy. And you're going to hate it every time someone else succeeds. If you're controlled by lust, you're going to be... If you're filled with lust, you're going to be controlled by your sexual desires. That's what's going to drive you, and it's going to drive you to dark, dark places. If you're controlled by anger or filled with anger, guess what? You are controlled by your temper, and it will direct the decisions you make, and it will always come out, and it'll, it'll wreak havoc on those around you. But on the other hand, if you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we're going to be controlled by grace. We're going to be controlled by power. That's what we see in Stephen's life. He is a man who lived a life that exalted Christ, that lifted up Jesus. And as a result of that, he is living life to the full. So let's look and continue on in verse 9. And some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, and to, and to the Cyrenians, and to the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicily and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen is sharing the gospel. He's being a witness in Jerusalem. And men from the synagogue rise up and oppose him. But look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So Stephen is such a powerful witness for the, for the gospel, for Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's, we've already talked about it. He has received power from the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, he is a, he is a, he is a powerful witness. So much so that the religious leaders, they don't even know what to do with him. Like they just look at him and go, we, we can't do anything with this guy. We can't stop him. There's nothing we can do. They, they don't know what to do with him. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit. Because he's filled with such grace and such power. Now, Stephen didn't attend Bible college. Stephen did not have a seminary degree. So where on earth did he have the wisdom and the confidence to stand up to the religious leaders like he did? There's only one place where that confidence and that wisdom and that ability comes from. And that is through being completely and totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. That's it. That's how Stephen was able to do what he did. He was fully and totally surrendered to Jesus. Stephen knew Jesus was with him. Stephen trusted Jesus' words, and Stephen believed Jesus' promises. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in, in Luke chapter 21. Remember, Luke and Acts are really one volume. So I have no doubt that Stephen knew these words. He may have even been an early disciple. We don't know. But what we do know, this is what Jesus spoke, and no doubt Stephen knew this. Listen to what it says. Uh, let me find the verse again. Verse 12, that's it. But 
But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues in prison. Has this happened to the disciples so far? Yeah, multiple times. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Look at verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Remember, Stephen is full of what? Wisdom. He's full of grace. He's full of power. Which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Does this sound like Stephen's story to you? This is exactly what is happening. Jesus has promised it, and now we're seeing it fleshed out in the life of Stephen. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Listen to this. But not a hair of your head will perish. But your endurance, by your endurance, you will gain, you will gain your lives. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, some of you will be put to death, but none of you will perish. How do we reconcile that in our minds? You see, when, when, when we as Christians die, as we'll see at the end of Stephen's life, it says that he went to sleep. Why? Because the moment he left this earth, he was in the presence of Jesus. And so he doesn't perish. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not separated from God. Yes, he may die. His physical body may be dead, but his spirit is alive and well in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, you, yeah, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. You're going to live for all eternity with me. But this is just a, a picture of Stephen's, Stephen's life. It's exactly what happens to Stephen. And so as you and I seek to advance the gospel, as we are, are his witnesses, as we proclaim the gospel, the truth to other people, we need to realize and we need to be praying, God, give me that same ability. The same ability Jesus promised, that he would give you the words to say. How many of you said, I can't share my faith because I don't have the words to say? And yet Jesus promised right here, like, I will give you the words to say. And so Stephen is before this, this council, before these people, and he is given the words, and they don't know what to do with him. So let's, keep, let's continue on with the story. Verse 11. Then, because they didn't know what to do with him, they, they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered, us, delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So what is happening? These religious bullies decide that if we can't beat him, let's attack him. And so they come up with these lies, and they actually break God's law to do this. Did you notice that they said they, they, 
that the religious leaders instigated men to bear false witness? What does the Old Testament law teach us not to do? Bear false witness. But they don't care. All they care about is destroying Stephen and attacking Stephen. And so what do they do? They make up these accusations that Stephen is blaspheming against the three pillars of Israel's faith. Moses, the temple, and the law. And they say he is against Moses. He is against the temple. He is against the law. Folks, this is eerily similar to the accusations that this same group of men brought against Jesus. Go back and look at Jesus' trial during his Passion Week, and you will find crazy similarities to what they bring against Jesus or the same accusations that they bring against Stephen. Why is that? Because ultimately their problem is Jesus. So in essence, what they are doing is they are putting Jesus on trial all over again. Because Stephen is preaching Jesus. Their, their, their problem isn't so much with Stephen as it is with Jesus. So here's the reality, and this is something we need to remember. If you are sharing your faith and your neighbor says, I don't want to hear about it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. If you're opposed for your faith, it's not people opposing you. They're opposing Jesus. Because I think what happens sometimes if we, if we share our faith with a coworker or a friend or a family member and they say, you know, I don't want anything to do with, I don't, I don't want to hear that, I don't want anything to do with that. What we do is we take that as a rejection upon ourselves as opposed to the, to the fact that they are rejecting Jesus. And when we take it as a rejection upon ourselves, that stops us from sharing with the next person that comes across our path. Because we, we don't want to be personally, nobody likes rejection. We don't want to be rejected again. But if we change our mindset and realize they're not rejecting me, they're rejecting Jesus. And so when I share my faith with someone, it's not about them rejecting me, it's about them rejecting Jesus. Well, look what happens in verse 7. So the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? Now let's stop right here, because what we're going to do in a minute, we're going to get into Stephen's defense, and his defense is brilliant. It is an incredible defense that Stephen gives. In fact, what he does is he literally walks through Israel's Old Testament history, beginning with Abraham, going through the patriarchs, to Moses, the law, the temple, and, and the kings, uh, the, the monarchy of David and, and Solomon. So he literally walks through and he goes accusation by accusation by accusation and he addresses each one of them. And what we see in, in Stephen's defense is that he understood the scriptures the same way Jesus did. What do I mean by that? Do you remember what Jesus did with his disciples? Those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension? Luke told us in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus taught his disciples two things. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And he showed them that the scriptures all point to him. So what does Stephen do? He takes that and he applies it. And he walks through the history of Israel. And he says, 
that starting with Abraham and the patriarchs, going through Moses, the law and the temple, and he says, listen, guys, every single bit of this points to Jesus. And Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, all the way through Acts chapter 7, verse 53, is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And it's not by one of the apostles. It's not by one of the 12 disciples. It's not by anyone like that. It is by a man who started out serving tables to widows. And he is the one that preaches the longest sermon recorded in Acts. And we know why, because he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and of grace and of power and of wisdom. But Stephen preaches this sermon. Now, we don't have time to read the entire thing. But I encourage you to read the entire sermon. Go back and read Acts 7, verse 2 through 53. And it's an incredible... If you were here for our, our one-story series where we walk through the story of the Bible, this will remind you of everything we talked about in that series. Because that is exactly what Stephen does. He walks through the entire history of Israel and tells these accusers of his that you don't understand the scriptures that you claim to understand because you don't understand Jesus. See, if you and I want to understand the Bible, we have to understand Jesus. And these men didn't understand the Bible, the scriptures, because they didn't understand Jesus. And so Stephen tells them, listen, guys, Moses pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the son of David that came to be king for all eternity to sit on the throne of David. He says that you and I are now the temple of God. And so he walks through each and every one of these accusations one by one through the history of Israel and says, God, you don't understand scripture because you don't understand Jesus. It's an incredible, incredible sermon. And I strongly encourage you to go back and read it. But here's the scary thing. These guys that were accusing Stephen, they were living for an extremely religious life. These were devout men. And in the nation of Israel, these would have been considered <clears throat> godly men. These would have been considered the spiritually elite men. And they were living for something. And they were living for that religious life, extremely religious life. The problem is they had the wrong Lord. That's, that was their problem. And here's the same is true for us. What, if what you and I are living for does not have Jesus at the center of it, then we're living for the wrong thing. If what you and I are living for does not have Jesus at the center of it, we are living for the wrong thing. That is what, exactly what happened with these men. They were living for the wrong thing. They thought they were living for God. And that's the scary part, isn't it? They thought they were honoring God by going after Stephen. They thought they were even honoring God by coming up with this, these false accusations, breaking God's law. Why? Because they thought, they thought so deeply that they were honoring God that they had to do anything to stop Stephen, even if it meant breaking God's very laws. 
And folks, if you and I are living for something that does not have Jesus at the center, we are living for the wrong thing. So we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus the center of my life? Is Jesus the center of every aspect of my life? If you're a parent, you have to ask yourself, am I parenting with Jesus at the center? Is my main purpose as a parent to point my children to Jesus Christ? Because that's our ultimate goal. As parents, we are raising adults, and we're raising adults by pointing them to Jesus. So if you're a parent here, you have to ask yourself, am I doing everything that I can to point my kids to Jesus? Not point them to sports, although those things are fine. It's fine for sports and extracurricular activity. The problem comes when that becomes Lord. Our kids were in sports, so don't, tell, don't, don't hear me saying your kids should not play sports or do extracurricular activity. I'm not saying that. That would be dumb to say that. But I am saying we have to evaluate, is that thing Lord? Or is Jesus Lord in my parenting? If you're married, is Jesus the center of your marriage? Do you pray together? Do you talk about scripture together? Do you, do you, do you grow together? We have to ask ourselves, if you're a student, Listen, if you're a student, students, uh, you need to know, is your schoolwork, are you going to school, are you honoring Jesus in everything you can when you go to school? Are you doing everything you can to live for Jesus in the cafeteria, in the hallways, in the classrooms where you go to school? Is Jesus the center of your academic career, whether you're in high school, middle school, college? Is Jesus the center of it? If you're single, are you honoring Christ? Is he the center of your singleness? Or have you made becoming married Lord? See, it's easy, it's easy for us, even as Christians, to make the wrong things Lord, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy for us to allow things to creep in and become our pursuit, become the things that capture our hearts, that grab our attention, that control our lives, because we are all living for something. Every single one of us is living for something. And it's easy, even as a Christian, to get caught up in that, to, to lose focus on Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here, the reason you're exploring faith is because the Lord of your life hasn't worked. Like you have been Lord of your life and it has not worked. And so you're looking for a new story. And what Stephen would tell you is like, listen, Jesus is Lord. He is the only one worth living for. He is the only one who completes us. He is the only one that we should surrender and live and follow and trust. Listen to what Stephen goes on to say. Again, read the, read the sermon. I strongly encourage you to go and read the sermon. It's, what, 51, 51 verses, something like that? Go read it. And here's what he says. Actually, it's only 49 verses, 48 verses, so you have no excuse. <laughs> so listen to, listen to, let's go to the end of his sermon. In verse 51, he says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He's talking about Jesus. 
You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, the end of, end of his sermon seems harsh, doesn't it? You stiff-necked people. But in order to understand that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament prophets would come to the nation of Israel and call them stiff-necked people. But the reason they would do that, because God had sent them and told them to say that, not as, an act, not as a way to, to condemn them, but as a way to offer grace to them. See, Stephen's not being harsh with them, because they would have understand, understood this language. He's not saying, listen, you idiots. What he's saying is, listen, you've missed it. Guys, God has put this truth before you over and over and over again. He put this truth before your forefathers, and they rejected it. He's put this truth before you, and you are rejecting it. So what is Stephen doing? Stephen is offering them and extending to them grace. He's saying, guys, God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And throughout our history, God has given us multiple chances to believe his truth about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, through the prophets of the Old Testament, they were persecuted. Jesus was ultimately killed. Those that, like John the Baptist, that spoke before him and, and made the way for him were beheaded. And so he's just saying over and over and over again, we have rejected it, we have missed it, and we need to repent, we need to stop, we need to turn and follow God. And what should they do? They should have repented, but instead, what do they do? They get enraged. They get mad. They get upset, and look what happens in verse 54. But when they heard these things, what things? This entire sermon. Go read it. I can't say that enough. Read it for yourself. It's incredible. They heard these things. They were enraged. They don't repent. They get mad. And they ground their teeth at him. That's pretty mad. You ever grind your teeth at somebody? You know, it's like, that's just, that's just bad. It's bad. But he, this is Stephen, was what? Full of the Holy Spirit. And he gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand hand of God. Listen, look at their response. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They're plugging their ears. We can't hear this. We're not going to listen to this. And they rushed together at him. They grabbed him up. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, for those of you who don't know what it means that they stoned him, it means that they grabbed rocks and they pelted him over and over and over again. And as they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, look what he does. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So they took these stones 
and they pelted Stephen until it killed him. But notice Stephen's response. Notice what he does, because even though this sermon was his death sentence, Stephen not only lived his life for Christ, he died in a manner worthy of Christ. And notice what he does in verses 59 and 60. As they were stoning them, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That sound familiar? Since we have nobody online, where's that from? What does that remind you of? Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says, do not hold this against them. Folks, even in his death, Stephen was like Christ. He says, Jesus, do not hold this against them. What grace, what compassion, what love must Stephen have had to in the midst of his being pelted with stones, cries out to Jesus, Jesus, don't hold this against them. Listen, only someone who has been so captured so controlled by the Spirit of God could have that kind of grace. Makes me question would I have that same kind of grace. And if not, what do I need to do to be more controlled and more consumed by the Holy Spirit? Now, this section of scripture here represents a turning point in the book of Acts. See, up until this moment, the gospel had only been preached in Jerusalem. Up until this point, the gospel was just to the Jews. But what did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? That you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But up until this point in time, the gospel had stayed in Jerusalem. The disciples had not taken the gospel outside of Jerusalem. But because of the persecution that follows, God uses this moment, He uses Stephen's death as a catalyst for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. It reminds me of that passage where God works all things to the good of those who love Jesus and are called according to his purposes. See, God used Stephen's martyrdom as a catalyst of obedience for the other disciples. But here's what I don't, here's what I want, you, I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss the young man that is standing in the crowd that day. See, there's a man, and it says in verse 58, 
that as they, as they were stoning Stephen, those who were there and doing the stoning laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, if you don't understand the story, you're like, okay, who is Saul? Is that the guy we should call? Better call Saul? Nope, it's a different, different Saul here, in case you were wondering. Very different, yes. So who is this Saul character? Well, he's a man who watched with approval as the stones were being thrown. Saul was a man who saw God's glory reflected in the face of Stephen. Saul was this man who heard Stephen's prayer for his persecutors. And Saul, in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, will become the answer to Stephen's prayer. Saul will become the answer to Stephen's prayer. See, Saul will soon find the forgiveness of Jesus when Jesus confronts him on this road to Damascus. And this man Saul, who we know also as the Apostle Paul, the blood of Stephen became the seed of the Apostle Paul's salvation. It's incredible to think about. Now, many scholars believe that given the details of Stephen's story and the fact that the other disciples probably wouldn't have been allowed in this trial and around there, many scholars believe that the Apostle Paul is the one that actually shared the story of Stephen with Luke so that he could write it and so that we could have it recorded. And chances are none of us will face what Stephen faced. We're not going to become martyrs, but here's the reality. Jesus calls each and every one of us, in a sense, to be a martyr. And here's what I mean. Jesus said you need to deny yourself or die to yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. Folks, that is the call of each and every one of us. But the reality is in many ways, it's a lot easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him. You see, living for him requires that you forsake all those other lords that we've allowed into our lives. Living for him requires us to deny all those false lords. It means that we stop living for ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days I like living for myself. And I have to deny that. I have to die. I have to become a martyr to myself. I have to die to myself. And that is often harder than it would be for somebody just to execute me for the name of Jesus. Because I have to do that every single day. And you have to do that every single day. You see, the call for us today is this. It's to surrender all. Now, the Greek word for all is all. Everything. Nothing left. We are to surrender all to the only one who is worth living for. And who is that only one? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, that's the call for each and every one of us. That's the aim of 
of our lives. The aim of your, of your life and my life is to be more and more like Jesus. That's what spiritual maturity is all about. In fact, that was what exemplified and, and was modeled in Stephen's life. That's why I said at the very beginning of this message that Stephen's life is a life of fullness, that we get a front row seat to a man who was fully surrendered, fully devoted, fully filled with the Holy Spirit, that he was becoming more and more like Jesus, which is the ultimate goal of each and every one of our lives. It was the goal of Stephen's life, and here's what I want you to get. After watching Stephen's life, becoming more and more like Jesus became the focus and the aim of the Apostle Paul's life as well. And I believe it started as he held those garments, watching this man die in such a way that was so Christ-like, so glorifying to God, that Paul thought about that later when he wrote these words to the church in Philippi. And he says this, in Philippians 3, he says, Indeed, beginning in verse 8, I count everything. In other words, I count all, everything, as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Do you think He had Stephen in mind when He wrote that? I do. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, or have already been made perfect, but what do I do? I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. You think he was forgetting what he did to Stephen? I do. If you go and read his epistles, I believe he struggled with this for the rest of his life. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward, for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That upward call that Paul was pressing on was to be more and more like Jesus. And that is the same goal for each and every one of us. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is not, am I willing to, lie, to, to die for Jesus, but am I willing to live for him? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and admit that living for you is oftentimes harder than dying for you. And that call to die to ourselves every single day is difficult. It is hard. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to die to ourselves, to die to our own desires, our own passions, and live completely and totally for you. Father, we started this message asking, what are we living for? 
And the reality is we can live for thousands and thousands and thousands of things, but there's only one person worth living for and worth dying for, and that is you, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would renew in our hearts this morning a desire to live for you. To do as Paul said and press toward the goal, the goal of knowing and becoming more and more like Jesus, that we would strain for it, that we would run after it, that we would chase it with all of our might, with everything that we have and everything that we are. We would make that our number one pursuit, becoming more and more like Jesus. But Father, in order to do that, we're going to need more of your grace. We're going to need more of your power. We're going to need your help to help us surrender more and more to you. Because we can't do it on our own. We can only do it through the power of your spirit working in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, as we close this service with this final song, my encouragement is what we've asked over and over in this message. Examine your own heart. Is Jesus the center? Is he the center of your marriage, your family, your career, even your retirement? For those of you that are retired, is Jesus the center of it all? And if not, use this time to reset that. If that means coming up before here in the, before in the front of this altar and just praying, do that. If it means kneeling at your chair, do that. Whatever it takes, whatever it means for you to reset Jesus as Lord, to reset Jesus as the center, to reset Jesus as the one thing that you're living for, my encouragement is you would do that today. So let's stand and let's reset, if need be, where Jesus is. And if he is center and if he is Lord right now, let's stand and do that, church.